Hello, and welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.10, Faith and Free Trade. In this episode, we're going to dive into the history of the British East India Trade Company, and how its opium monopoly fueled its rise as a company, and how the new ethic of quote-unquote free trade helped end its reign in China. One important note before we start the full episode. I kicked off this season with episode 1.1, What is China? Because I think defining terms is important, and, as I said in that episode, quote, China has been many different things to different peoples at different times, end quote. The same can be said for India, but maybe even more so. Just as modern China was birthed from the Qing Empire, modern India was birthed from the Mughal Empire and the British Raj. Even more than China, India, as we know it today, is a product of imperialism and nationalism. I'll cover all this in much greater detail in the future, but for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to simply define India as an anachronistic shorthand for the territory occupied by the modern countries of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. I'll try to refer to specific regions as much as possible, But just know that during the period we're looking at today, India as we know it today didn't exist. The British East India Trade Company, or EIC as I'll be calling it because British East India Trade Company is quite a mouthful, is one of those institutions that will be popping up in just about every season of Tiny Insect that touches the 17th, 18th, or 19th centuries, the rise of the corporation, or the British Empire. I want to do at least one season on the EIC and the creation of India at some point. All this is to say it's a big topic. The goal of this episode is to give you a basic introduction to what the EIC was and how its activities were so important to the Qing Empire's silver and opium problems. The EIC was founded in the first years of the 17th century. The original name was the quote, Governor and Company of the Merchants of London Trading into the East Indies. As in all the rich places Columbus was trying to get when he ran into the Caribbean, which became the West Indies. Despite its later association with India, as I just talked about it, the EIC was originally created to trade with people of a much larger and more diverse region. I mean, the charter covered nearly half the globe. The formation of the company followed more than a decade of successful pirating, I I mean privateering, in the Indian Ocean, because queens hire privateers, not pirates. The EIC was the first concerted effort to actually trade in that area. The company's original investors were burgesses, aldermen, and knights. In 1652, the EIC became a publicly traded company with publicly traded stock. The company would go on to count numerous court ministers, noblemen, and MPs among the ranks of its shareholders. In the original charter, Queen Elizabeth granted the EIC a monopoly on any trade between India, Southeast Asia, and China on the one hand, and England, her American colonies, and other European countries on the other. Anything traveling between these two regions on English ships had better be controlled by the EIC or they would be in violation of English law. But, and this is key for understanding how the opium trade developed, the EIC was not granted a monopoly on direct trade 
between India and China. For the first 150-odd years of its existence, the EIC slowly established outposts on the coasts of South Asia, East Asia, and the East Indies, places like Macau, Madras, Calcutta, and Bombay, which was included in the dowry of the Portuguese princess Catherine of Braganza when she married King Charles II. The EIC fought with some local Asian rulers and rivals from Europe, especially the Dutch. They didn't always fare well, but even in the face of defeat, they raised new funds, recruited new soldiers, built new ships, and just kept on going. The EIC also received further concessions and privileges from the crown, including the right to acquire and administer territory, raise and maintain armies, fight wars, conduct diplomacy, and exercise direct legal authority over its territories. The Seven Years' War, sometimes in the United States known as the French and Indian War, was a critical turning point for the EIC. The American front in that war was just a small theater in this global conflict, which lasted from 1756 to 1763. One upshot of the war for the EIC was that it halted the expansion and ambition of their French colonial rivals in India. Most importantly, the French were driven completely out of Bengal, a region that is today split between the modern countries of India and Bangladesh. Within a few decades of driving out the French, the EIC established political and military supremacy over most other rivals for power in India, defeating the Mughals and their allies in a series of battles, sieges, treaties, and broken promises. As I said earlier, I'll try to revisit this in the future because it really deserves its own season. Trade between the East India Company and Chinese merchants during the 17th and most of the 18th century was a fairly straightforward exchange. The EIC purchased Chinese products in direct exchange for British goods. The main British export to China was silver, much of which was purchased from the Spanish. Silver was basically the only thing that the EIC could trade profitably in any kind of quantity. During the first half of the 18th century, silver made up 90% of the values of goods shipped to China by the British. The Chinese, or their other trading partners, could produce whatever else they needed for less than the British. In the second half of the 18th century, the EIC did begin to find some other things Chinese merchants wanted. Cotton, that was grown in India, became increasingly popular after the conclusion of the Seven Years' War. Chinese merchants in Guangzhou sold that raw cotton to factories in neighboring Foshan, where it was spun and woven into fabrics for re-export to other regions of China or abroad. Early on, the EIC bought more silk than anything else. China wasn't the only place you could get silk at the time. Muslim traders had smuggled silkworms out of China centuries ago. However, the quality, quantity, and prices the Chinese producers were able to offer was unbeatable. Silk purchases rose steadily from about 1,500 metric tons in 1723 to 66,000 metric tons in 1828. Then, from 1828 to 1834, they doubled to more than 130,000 tons and silk purchases just kept increasing from there. British traders bought finished silks, but they also bought tons and tons of raw silk for processing in the new British factories. 
Despite the ever-increasing silk purchases, tea purchases grew faster and soon surpassed silk to become China's most valuable export to the British. And, unlike silk, China was basically the only place in the world that grew tea until the British successfully established their own tea plantations in India, but that was only after 1870. By 1862, Britain imported 115 million pounds of tea, much of which was re-exported, while the U.S. imported 37 million pounds and the continental Europe bought a similar amount. Tea consumption in Britain grew from 30 million pounds in 1831 to 79 million in 1862. That's an annual average consumption per person in Britain rising to 2 pounds and 12 ounces, enough for more than 3 cups of tea per person per day. It was a true mass consumer product. And the taxes levied on imports created an enormous windfall for the British government. The more Chinese products the EIC wanted to buy, the more desperate they became to find products besides silver that Chinese merchants would accept. This became even more important in the first years of the 19th century, as the British Navy battled Napoleon and silver supplies from the Americas dried up. The answer, of course, was opium. As I said last episode, opium grew well in many parts of China. It also grew very well in Central Asia and places like Afghanistan, and had long been imported into China by overland trade routes. Until the late 1700s, most opium used in China was probably from one of these two sources. The Seven Years' War and the EIC's conquest of Bengal gave the EIC control of some of the best poppy-producing regions in the world. The first British Governor General of Bengal, Warren Hastings, created an EIC monopoly on opium production in 1773. Bengali poppy farmers were required to deliver all they grew to the EIC's opium factory in Calcutta for a price fixed by the company. Bengali farmers caught growing opium outside of this monopoly were punished. Opium continued to grow in other regions outside direct EIC control, but over the following decades, the EIC slowly brought these into their orbit as well. So, by 1830, the EIC had a monopoly on all opium exports out of India. The opium trade between India and China was the single most valuable commodity trade of the 19th century. Unlike the Qing Empire, opium was completely legal in Britain and the United States during the 18th and 19th centuries, and wasn't considered particularly dangerous. It did, of course, have its opponents, many of whom were the same moralists who also wrung their hands over the dangers of tea and hot chocolate. Opium was available for sale in many forms, including candies and liquid tinctures, and was typically used as a medicinal. But the drug was illegal in China, and the EIC knew it. So to get around this, the EIC exported its opium into China through subcontracted agents known as country traders. These were independent traders who operated the direct trade between India and China, where the EIC itself didn't have a monopoly. The company didn't want opium on their boats because they knew that it was illegal, and they worried that being caught would jeopardize their other trade. Using the country traders helped the EIC keep their hands clean and stay on the good side of the Qing officials in Guangzhou. 
the country traders were kind of like Uber or Lyft drivers today. Nominally independent of the big brand name, but completely dependent on that big company for their livelihoods. In order to maintain the legal fiction that the country traders were just independent traders doing their own business and didn't really have anything to do with the EIC, the company issued printed orders to those traders that forbade them from smuggling into China. In person, though, the EIC's administrators in Calcutta made it perfectly clear they were required to sell their opium into China or risk being cut out of the next auction. The country traders bought opium from the EIC at those auctions in Calcutta and then transported it to places like Linton Island in the Pearl River estuary, just a few dozen miles south of Guangzhou. The drug was then offloaded onto anchored ships for holding so that the traders could then sail into Guangzhou without their opium being seized if the Qing officials inspected their boats. In the city, they arranged sale to Chinese buyers for silver. Those Chinese buyers would then pick up the opium from the holding ships anchored off of Linton Island and sneak it ashore for distribution throughout the Qing Empire by a vast network of smugglers. In many cases, the local Qing officials, or Manchu bannermen, took part in the trade. Although it was officially banned, enforcement was not very strong or consistent until the 1830s. As we'll see, the increased enforcement of the Qing laws against opium smuggling led directly to the outbreak of the Opium War. Opium sold, the country traders brought their silver to an East India Company agent in Guangzhou and traded it for a bill of exchange that could then be exchanged for currency or bullion from company branches in India or England, or to purchase some more opium for another trip. Now, silver in hand, the EIC then used it, the silver that had just been traded for the opium, to purchase tea, silk, or whatever goods they wanted to ship back to Britain. Before the 1820s, the EIC still had to import silver into Guangzhou in order to make sure they had enough on hand to buy the silk and tea that they wanted. But eventually, opium generated more silver revenue than they needed for their purchases. Between the late 1820s and the late 1850s, British ships carried 258 million silver tayal, that's almost 10,000 metric tons of silver, out of China alongside all that silk and tea. This reversed the trade pattern that had dominated in China for centuries. The triangle trade between colonial India, Qing China, and the British Isles was a critical route for extracting wealth, power, and social standing out of India and converting it into wealth, power, and social standing in Britain. Indian products, namely opium, raw cotton, and textiles, were procured in India and shipped to China, where they were exchanged for tea, silk, and eventually for silver. These goods were then shipped to Britain and sold for British pounds in the domestic market or re-exported to Europe. The tea had an added benefit of enhancing the value and demand for sugar produced in Britain's Caribbean colonies, since Brits like to drink their tea sweet. Opium products helped pay for the EIC's wars against the other powers in India and to expand and consolidate their holdings there. The profits were immense. Thanks to their monopoly on Indian opium production, the EIC more than doubled their money on the opium. At one point, about 20% of the Indian colonial government's revenue came from opium sales alone. 
Selling opium into the Qing domains was not an easy task. Trading offshore at places like Linton Island was one solution, but British and American country traders were not satisfied just trading around Guangzhou and the Pearl River estuary. To get help, the opium dealers turned to a group of men they thought that they could trust, who also happened to have some of the best Chinese language skills among any European group, Protestant missionaries. Because he's going to play a role in both the Opium War and Hong Shiquan's Society of God Worshippers, I want to focus on one of these Protestant missionary opium smugglers in particular, Karl Gutzlaff. Karl Gutzlaff was born in Pomerania in 1803 and attended school in Berlin in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. As a Lutheran missionary, he first traveled to the Dutch colony on Java in 1826, and then to Bangkok, Singapore, and Korea. Gutzlaff was a gifted linguist and learned languages with ease. During his first five years in Asia, he helped with biblical translations into Thai, Cambodian, and Lao. He also met many Chinese immigrant families in his travels. Chinese immigrant communities in Southeast Asia exploded during the Chinese population boom of the 18th and 19th centuries. It was among these Chinese communities, far away from the jealous eyes of the Qing authorities and their determination to prevent foreigners from learning Chinese languages, that Gutzlaff mastered a dialect from Fujian province. He gave himself a Fujianese name, dressed in colorful Chinese clothing, and allegedly got himself adopted by a Fujianese family to become an official Qing subject. He stopped short of growing the Qing-mandated queue and instead wore a turban to leave his hair's allegiance ambiguous. Gutzlaff was as convincing as an eccentric Fujianese doctor as he was an eccentric Prussian missionary. In 1831, Gutzlaff hitched a ride on a Chinese trading junk traveling from Bangkok to Tianjin, a large port in northern China that was a major gateway to Beijing via the Grand Canal. Remember Tianjin. It's going to be an important location in future episodes. Gutzlaff earned his keep in Tianjin as a physician and found a Chinese patron who set him up in a large house in the city which Gutzlaff says was then flooded with people seeking help for a variety of ailments, including opium addiction. He treated them, but also preached and sent them home with Chinese-language Christian texts that he'd smuggled in with him. After six months, he caught a ship back down south to Guangzhou, having avoided punitive actions by Qing authorities, though he counted several among his patients. Gutzlaff arrived back in Guangzhou with a reputation that was growing. There, an enterprising member of the East India Company, who planned to illegally sail a ship up the coast and see if they could find ports to sell in outside of Guangzhou, hired Gutzlaff as an interpreter for his scheme. To reduce the risk, they only brought textiles for sale. No opium. Gutzlaff translated for the captain and kept them out of trouble, all the while distributing many more Christian tracts, including copies of a fully translated Bible. Though the trip ticked off the East India Company directors back in England when they found out about it, it helped boost Gutzlaff's profile among the English-speaking merchant community even more. Gutzlaff next took a job with Hardeen, Matheson, and company, and he is soon riding 
more ships up and down the Chinese coast. This time, however, the holds were full of opium, although they always granted Gutzloff a large berth for his Chinese Bibles and other Christian tracts. Like any good Protestant, Gutzloff thought opium smoking was sinful and the people of China needed to be saved from it. At the same time, he considered working for opium dealers a price worth paying for the opportunity to preach and distribute Christian tracts, since it was only Christianity that could save their souls. Gutzloff believed the spread of commerce and quote-unquote free trade was vital to his own interests of spreading Christianity. Trading directly with the people of China and around Qing supervision, he believed, would become a wedge through which they could attain direct access to the Chinese people without interference from their Manchu overlords. Through that wedge, Gutzloff could convert China's unsaved souls. On one of these voyages, in 1835, Gutzloff was accompanied by a young American missionary named Edwin Stevens, who helped Gutzloff hand out Christian tracts on shore. The next year, it was probably Stevens who gave Hong Shiquan his first Christian tract, an event we'll discuss in great detail in a few episodes. By 1837, there were over 20 American and British ships trading opium up and down the Chinese coastline, away from Guangzhou. While Gutzloff handed out his Bibles, English and American traders printed Chinese-language pamphlets preaching the gospel of commerce. The belief that the people of China wanted unrestricted access to foreign goods and trade opportunity, and that it was only their Qing rulers who prevented this, became an important belief among men like Gutzloff and the opium smugglers and merchants for whom he worked. This narrative was also popular among manufacturers and businessmen back home, who read reports of Gutzloff's exploits with delight. If only the Qing rulers could be made to stand aside, the Chinese people were ready to do business. Gutzloff's new employers, William Hardeen and James Matheson, were two of the most vocal free trade proponents in the British Empire. Here's one example of how this argument was framed and presented. It comes from the influential Canton Register, a popular English-language newspaper among the residents of Macau and Guangzhou that happened to be published by Hardeen and Matheson. The article in question, published in December 1834, with no author listed, is entitled Barbarism Civilization. It begins by postulating that the world and its productions were made for the use of mankind, in allusion to the book of Genesis by, quote, shutting out the rest of the world from a reasonable liberty in its territories, the laws of China are also founded on wrong principles and destroy the general rights of mankind, end quote. However, property and access to resources really isn't for everyone, the author writes, but only for members of capital C civilization. The United States and Britain, after all, drove the Native Americans from their land, but, the author argues, that was by the right that, quote, barbarism must vanish before civilization, ignorance succumb to knowledge, such appears to be the law of nature, or rather the will of God. By what right does China, the government of such, separate itself from the rest of the world, claim submission from its inhabitants, and treat them as conquered barbarians? Does her policy seem accordant with the law of nature or the will of God? 
if all nations followed her example, what would the world be? End quote. The author claims that if all nations acted as the Qing Empire does, the world would devolve into universal war, a la Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. The second section of the article, simply titled Free Trade, in it, the author posits that if the Chinese government was quote-unquote attacked by a foreign European power, then free trade, and that's in all caps in the article, free trade will prosper. The article continues with a discussion of the importance of the Chinese language education and the importance of having native English speakers as translators and not relying on Chinese speakers to learn English, which was the dominant method of communication up until that point because the Qing banned teaching of Chinese languages on pain of death. The article closes with a celebration of the appointment of Karl Gutzlaff, ally of free traders, to be the interpreter for the new British superintendent. After reading the article, Barbarism, Civilization, readers of the Canton Register would then come across an English translation of the most recent proclamation by the Daoguang Emperor against the importation of opium. These were published at the same time. Barbarism and Civilization was published at the end of 1834, a momentous year for the British East India Company and the British in China. In the summer of 1833, the British Parliament not only declined to renew the EIC's monopoly of trade in China, but banned the company from trading in China at all. They could still produce opium and wholesale it to the sloops bound for China, but the other legs of the triangle trade, tea and silks to Britain and to Europe, was opened up to traders like William Hardeen and James Matheson. The 1834 trading season, in which this article is published, was the first in more than a century without the EIC. It was a tremendous setback for the company. At the beginning of the 1830s, the power of the EIC surpassed all but a few of the world's states. It maintained standing armies that numbered in the tens of thousands, a global trade network, and provided its employees and shareholders with healthy compensation. The opium trade had been a key to that success. In the opening decades of the 19th century, the trade coming out of Guangzhou accounted for up to two-thirds of the company's sales in London and high profit margins to boot. That is to say, most of the company's sales in London were of Chinese-produced silk and tea purchased with Indian opium. As with many powerful corporations, the EIC did not lack for domestic enemies in Britain. In the early 1830s, opposition to the EIC mostly came from three overlapping constituencies. The first were the factory owners and the workers they hired in the new industrial centers, places like Birmingham and Manchester. The second were free trade societies, which are ideologically committed to reducing barriers to trade as a way of enriching the nation. This camp was also driven by increasing competition from American traders who were not prevented from trading outside Britain by the East India Company's monopoly. Finally, there was a general opposition from the British public, often led by Christian leaders and missionaries. The latter's opposition came both from personal observation of opium addiction and also because the trade was giving Christians a bad reputation in China and elsewhere as immoral drug dealers. Suffice it to say, the activities of Karl Gutzlaff was not well-liked among these men. 
the end of the IEC's trading privileges was made possible by the Reform Act, which reapportioned representation in Parliament in a way that today we'd recognize as a much more small-D democratic system. Before the Reform Act, the big, growing industrial cities like Manchester and Birmingham had little to no representation in Parliament, while backwater towns that hadn't grown in 200 years still held significant power. These were the so-called rotten boroughs. The Reform Act also expanded the electorate from about 12% to 20% of the adult male population, and many of these new voters elected MPs hostile to the EIC. It wouldn't be until 1918, with the Fourth Reform Act, that Britain finally achieved universal malehood suffrage. All women received the vote in 1928. In place of the EIC, the British government now appointed a superintendent to manage the relationship between British subjects and the Qing Empire. It was the second British superintendent who hired Karl Gutzloff as his translator, an appointment that barbarism civilization celebrated. We'll talk about the fate of the first superintendent, Lord Napier, next episode. The Qing were not happy to see the EIC go. While the British Crown had licensed a single company to trade in China, the Qing had licensed their own merchant companies to trade with the foreigners. These were the Hong merchants. The system was established in the early 18th century, with about a dozen licensed merchant companies at any given time. In addition to all the normal things merchants do, the Hong merchants were responsible for collecting hefty import and export taxes and remitting funds to Beijing. The emperor considered the Hong merchants personally responsible for the foreign guests and for any issues that arose. If the traders had any issues, they were supposed to bring their complaints to the Hong merchants, not the emperor or his administration, and it was up to the Hong merchants to find a solution. It was very important to the Qing court to keep relationships smooth and controlled and indirect. They made a lot of money taxing the Guangzhou trade. If a Hong performed poorly or offended the Qing, they were replaced. For these responsibilities, the Hong merchants were granted exclusive rights to sell products of the Qing Empire to the foreigners in Guangzhou. The most prominent of the Hong merchants during the 1830s was Wu Bingjiang. The British and American traders at the time called him Hokua, and that's the name he's still called in most modern books. It took me an embarrassingly long time to sort this all out, but Hokua was actually the name of the business organization that Wu owned, not his personal name. Contemporary traders calling him that, that's fine, but calling him Hokua today would be like Chinese historians in the year 2205 calling Warren Buffett Hathaway after his company Berkshire Hathaway. Anyway, just like everyone insisting on calling Guangzhou Canton in the history genre, everyone calls Wu Bingjiang Hokua. Not here. On Tiny Insect, his name is Wu Bingjiang. Wu was born in 1769 into a Fujiang merchant family and grew up in the twilight years of Qianlong's reign, a time of rapid growth and expansion in the empire. Wu's father started the Hong, or company, and Wu Bingjiang took it over when his father died in 1822. By the time of his death in 1843, Wu was probably the richest private citizen in the world. Julia Lavelle writes that at the time of his death, Wu was 10 times richer than Nathaniel Rothschild. 
though I'm not 100% sure which one, probably the richest one. Among the British and American traders operating in Guangzhou, Wu had a reputation of being above reproach. He was known to be completely honest and trustworthy, which was important because the traders in Guangzhou didn't use contracts or really have a neutral court to which they could bring disagreements amongst each other. Instead, all trade was conducted based on personal relationships. Outside the EIC, this overlapped with family relationships, as the major trading houses on both the British and the Qing side were usually tightly held family affairs. The teas Wu sold were very high quality, a fact in which he took great pride. He stamped them with his own seal, and the whole club brand became well known in Britain and the United States. Thanks to his impeccable reputation, Wu handled all of the trade with the British EIC in Guangzhou, as well as other trade partners that met his exacting standards. Among these requirements was that his trade partners stay out of the opium trade, though as we discussed EIC traders who might themselves never touch a chest of opium still relied on the illicit trade. Wu hired a young American man to be his secretary and translator. The two grew quite close and Wu is said to have treated him like a son. It was also very good for business. Using his American connections, Wu began to ship his teas abroad for direct sale, cutting out the middlemen. To accomplish this, he had to send them under his American secretary's name, for which the young man received a 10% cut. These relationships were crucial in the turmoil that followed the end of the AIC's monopoly and trading rights. The opening of the trade led to a flood of British traders in Guangzhou, which led to a sort of tea bubble as everyone tried to outbid each other and local tea merchants took advantage by jacking up their prices. To try and gain an upper hand, many of the new private traders risked the wrath of the Chinese authorities and went around the Hong merchants to buy from unlicensed Chinese traders, a move that sent many of the Hong merchants out of business. At the same time, the profit margins for British and American traders shrank or disappeared completely as they outbid each other. That's free trade for you. A couple years later, three of the largest British firms, along with many American firms, collapsed in a transatlantic trade bubble of 1836 to 7. One of the largest American trading companies, Russell & Co., nearly collapsed when they were shorted 200,000 pounds by collapsing British banks during that transatlantic trade bubble. Only loans from their business partner, Wu Bingjiang, kept them afloat. The loans weren't in silver bullion shipped from China, but simply a draw upon Wu's bank account in New York City. Wu's fortune was every bit as international as his American and British trading partners. Next episode, I want to spend some time examining the history of diplomacy, or lack thereof, between the Qing and British. This history, and each side's different understanding of what diplomacy is even for, will be quite important for understanding why war breaks out when Lin Zexu tries to end the opium trade once and for all. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews help other listeners find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod. Thanks. Thanks.